0: Jesus would say, what will it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, the crowds gave their souls away. Physical healing, yes. The demons exercised from them, yes. But no spiritual touch, or at least a very small number of them. They were obsessed and mesmerized by Jesus. The Pharisees hated Jesus, and yet it was a small group of disciples who actually believed who He said He was. It causes us to examine our hearts this morning when we are reminded of the ministry of our Lord. Why are we infatuated with Jesus? This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. John's County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I am preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So, if you are interested in a confessional, Reformed Church plant, intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than three miles from Interstate 95 and less than two miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn again to the Gospel of Mark as we continue our study through the shortest of the four Gospels. We come this morning to Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. The title of the message, A Bio of Jesus' Ministry. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word and allow me to begin reading in verse 7. And as always, remember that we are reading the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. This is God's holy word. Please be seated as we bow for prayer. Our Father, as we approach your throne and the study of your word, we understand that we are coming to the climax, Lord of the week. We desire to begin our week with the climax of sitting under the preaching of your word. And Lord, we recognize that it is not the preacher that is to receive the glory. It is not the preacher that has power in and of himself. The power comes from your blessed Holy Spirit. The power comes from your authoritative word. So Lord, we pray that we would have ears to hear this morning, that we would have eyes to see the glory of Christ put on display before us in this rich gospel. Lord, be with us. Lord, help our minds to be sharp. Help our hearts to be soft. Help our spirits to be open to Thy truth, we pray, in the blessed name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. When studying the Gospels, I think that it's important to understand that each writer, as they wrote, wrote with supernatural recall by the Holy Spirit. I had a Greek professor in college who used to pray the same thing on the morning of tests. He would pray that God would give his students a supernatural recall of the material. And I appreciated that. That always was a tremendous strength to me and a help to me. But when we are talking about the four writers of the gospel, the supernatural recall that they received came directly from the Holy Spirit, who had them write what was inspired by God Himself as they wrote the words and the deeds of Jesus, they were writing what was actually inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we know this because John chapter 14 and verse 26 confirms that Jesus promised to the disciples that when He was gone, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father would send in His name, would cause them to remember all the things that He said to them. But as we noted, Mark writes through the eyes of the Apostle Peter, right? Mark sat down with the Apostle Peter. Peter was an eyewitness of the testimony that Mark writes in this Gospel. And we know Peter was an aggressive person. We know Peter was, we could even say, an impatient person. I often imagine Peter in an Apostle's meeting or an Elder's meeting, growing impatient, wondering why they are meeting so long, simply wanting to get to the point. What is the point of this? And I think that might be why Mark's Gospel is the shortest of all the Gospels. Peter wants Mark to get to the point. What is the point? Well, you remember in chapter 1 and verse 1, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's Mark's point. He wants us to understand the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. But as Mark wrote the shortest Gospel, he is compelled from time to time throughout this Gospel to provide some sweeping statements, some summary statements regarding the ministry of our Lord. This is sort of Mark's way of telling us that Jesus did and said much more than what Mark writes about. For instance, we've already seen one of these back in chapter 1 and verse 35, We read, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed, went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They found him. They said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Verse 39, and he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. A summary statement of, what marked our Lord's ministry which was that of preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. Our text this morning is another summary statement, but if you skip with me to chapter 6 and verse 53, we see another summary statement by Mark. Mark 6:53 when they had crossed over they came to land and at Geneziret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. They ran about the whole region. They began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he came, in villages, cities, or the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Again, a summary statement to say that Jesus did a lot, Jesus said a lot, there were a lot of people around. He was very, very busy. Now when we come to our text this morning, Mark 3 verses 7 through 12, I think that Mark places this summary statement here for a couple of reasons. First of all, he wants to contrast the growing opposition toward Jesus that we've seen from the religious leaders um, with Jesus' growing popularity. He may have been hated by the religious establishment, but Mark's point here is that he was loved by the people. People came to him in droves to be healed and to hear his preaching. I also think that this summary statement provides a context to show us that Jesus had a larger group of followers. And in fact, at this point, he had not even chosen all of the twelve. He had an outer band of disciples that was more than just the twelve. It composed 70 plus people. And then in addition to that, the many crowds of people. We see that among these people, among these crowds were disciples, they were genuine followers, but there were also curiosity seekers. There were those who just wanted delivered from their demons. There were those who just wanted healed from their various sicknesses. They left unchanged, unforgiven, unmoved spiritually. They were using Jesus. This is Mark's way of telling us that. And this isn't much different. The many people today who have gone to church this Lord's Day around our country and around the world, the visible church is always a mixed bag of the superficial and the spiritual, the genuine and the fake, truth seekers and curiosity seekers. Mark wants us to understand that Jesus had a large impact in the world that He lived in, but it wasn't always a spiritual impact because of the hardness of the people's hearts. We know from chapter 1 and verse 28, another summary statement, at once, Jesus' fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, very beginning, Jesus became very popular. And this meant, as we saw in chapter 1 and verse 45, that Jesus sometimes couldn't even enter the cities because He would be mobbed by the people. So He stayed out in the countryside to preach and to teach because that was the true reason He came, was to declare the Gospel and to urge people to repent of their sins. And the crowds were so magnificent, they swelled to such magnificent proportions that at times, Jesus preaching indoors, the crowd would be around the door and it would extend out the throng would into the streets to try to hear Jesus and crowds of sick people trying to fight through to receive a healing, But not all of these people believed who Jesus claimed he was and who Mark says he was right out of the gates, the Son of God. But that is exactly what Peter wants Mark to write about, that Jesus is the Son of God. That statement is made in chapter 1 and verse 1. And that declarative statement has seen many eyewitnesses. If you go back with me to chapter 1, the Old Testament Scriptures serve as an eyewitness to this truth. Verse 2, it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. The Old Testament Scriptures were an eyewitness collectively to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. They prepared the way for the Son of God to come. But not only the Old Testament Scriptures, also John the Baptist. Notice with me in verse 7, he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was an eyewitness to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. And it wasn't just the Old Testament Scriptures and John the Baptist, but there was a third eyewitness to the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, and that was God Himself. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, the voice from heaven, the very voice of God said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. But beyond all of these eyewitnesses to Jesus' identity, Mark wants us to know that Jesus' actions showed that He was who He claimed to be. We've seen Jesus throughout this Gospel have power over demons. He would command unclean spirits to leave, to be silent and to never come back. We've seen Jesus' power not only over demons, but over diseases. Mark will tell us that He healed many who were sick with various Diseases. He had power over demons and over diseases. He had power over the spiritually dead. He told the paralytic who was crippled to pick up his bed and to walk and to go home. And he forgave his sins. He had power over demons and diseases and spiritual death. And even over the devil himself, we saw that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. But he did not succumb to that temptation. In all of this, Mark does not want us to leave our study of his Gospel apart from seeing Jesus' identity, that He is the incarnate Son of God and therefore the only Savior of the world. And that raises an important question. Why do you read your Bible? Why are you infatuated with Jesus? Why do you pray to Jesus? Why do you attend church? Is your focus on the spiritual... Or the physical? Is it on the physical what you can get from Jesus in this life? Like the crowds? Or is it on the spiritual? Not only what He provides in this life, but what He has provided for you in the life to come. Jesus would say, what will it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, the crowds... Gave their souls away. Physical healing, yes. The demons exercised from them, yes. But no spiritual touch or at least a very small number of them. They were obsessed and mesmerized by Jesus. The Pharisees hated Jesus. And yet it was a small group of disciples who actually believed who He said He was. It causes us to examine our hearts this morning when we are reminded of the ministry of our Lord. Why are we infatuated with Jesus? Is it rooted in the fact that we want our sins forgiven? Or do we want a Jesus that is like a genie in a bottle that we can just rub and and whatever win that we have, we ask Him for what we want and He gives it to us because we're so focused on this life. I think as Mark writes, he wants us to know Mark 1.1, the identity of Jesus. He's the incarnate Son of God. He is the only Savior of the world. He is your only hope. He is my only hope. He is the only hope for the sinners who aren't in this sanctuary. The church must declare His identity. The church cannot get off focus from who Jesus is. And so we see here in these verses Mark giving to us a bio of our Lord's ministry. If you go to a, a website of a of a prolific organization, and you go to the About Me page, you will see a bio of the president of that organization, the head of that organization. Well, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And what did He come to do? What did He come to say? What was His ministry about? Well, if you've come this morning and you want to know in summary fashion who Jesus is and what He is about, you've come to the right place, because Mark provides A summary for us. A bio of our Lord's ministry. And what Mark does for us is he gives to us three general characteristics which simply prove Jesus' identity as the incarnate Son of God and the only Savior of the world. His ministry was marked by three characteristics. First, it was marked by what we might call unavoidable affinity. We see this in verses 7 and 8. Secondly, Unrepeatable ability, verses 8 and 9. Jesus said and did things that have never been done before or since in the history of the world. And number three, His ministry was marked by undeniable authority. There is no other king. And there is no other greater power. He is in control of your life this morning, whether you recognize it or not. So let's look at these three characteristics of our Lord's ministry. First of all, note then, what we see in verses 7 and 8. His ministry was marked by unavoidable affinity. Unavoidable affinity. There is a combination here we see in verses 7 and 8 when we read in between the lines of our Lord's compassion, His power, His truth, His grace that drew the crowds to Him. He was an irresistible divine magnet that caused people to want to be around Him. Even when He sought withdrawal, the crowds refused to remain withdrawn from Him. Note the beginning of verse 7. Mark says, Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed Him. A great crowd. Now last week we saw the Pharisees were frustrated with Jesus because He exposed their legalism regarding their observance of the Sabbath. And we saw... In verse 6, the conclusion of that, that the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus as to how they might destroy Him. So I think it's likely that when it says in verse 7, Jesus withdrew with His disciples from the sea, He's withdrawing from the synagogue. He's withdrawing from this hostility. He's trying to get away from this hatred of the religious leaders. In fact, we know that's the case because in Matthew's account of this same account, Matthew 12, 15, we read that Jesus was aware of these plots and so He withdrew from the synagogue. That was the turf of the demons. That was the turf of the religious leaders. Jesus is moving from the synagogue to the seaside. He's withdrawing with His disciples to get away. He's not going to the busy port area of Capernaum where the synagogue is located. He's probably going to the northern end of the Sea of Galilee where the Jordan dumped into the lake. He's getting away from his disciples. He knew this wasn't his time to be murdered. As another gospel writer says, Jesus would say, My time has not yet come or my hour has not yet come. And so Jesus is going away with the disciples. Who were the disciples? Well, so far, it would have been Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Philip, and Nathaniel, and Matthew. The others were not called yet. But along with this small group of disciples, His select, those that would be His apostles, would have been more disciples, a number very large. At this point, we don't even know how many there were. But Jesus is taking this group of people with Him, and it must have been a large enough crowd... Because they couldn't hide. It says in verse 7 that a great crowd followed Him. I think this numbered not just in the hundreds, but in the thousands and perhaps in the tens of thousands. And why do I say that? Well, because of what the rest of verse 7 and verse 8 goes on to point out. They came from all areas of geography imaginable. They came from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. This massive crowd came from all directions. They came from the north. They came from the south. They came from the east. They came from the west. And as verse 8 says here, there were some Galileans present. Jesus Himself was a Galilean. He was from Nazareth. Most of the disciples were. But there were those that came from the south, from the province of Judea, from the city of Jerusalem, which was about 100 miles to the south. That's a long distance on foot, coming to hear Jesus, coming to see Jesus. And they also came from Idumea. That was even further south than Jerusalem. It was a place of Edomite refugees who were trying to escape the attacks of the Arabs against them. Many came from the south. But some also came, as verse 8 says, from the east. That is from beyond the Jordan. And so others came from the northwest, places like Tyre and Sidon. These were all places that were likely exclusively Gentile regions. To give you some perspective on this, John the Baptist was a very popular figure, but he only drew crowds from Jerusalem and the province of Judea, mainly just Jews. Jesus is drawing people from hundreds of miles around, and it's not just Jews, it is Gentiles, pagans. There's an unavoidable affinity of people drawn to Jesus. He was mesmerized, mesmerizing because of his power and his authority fulfills prophecies such as Isaiah nine six that says the servant of the Lord was a light to the Gentiles. And that was beginning to be fulfilled here. There is only one king in this world. I hope you understand that. And it is King Jesus. There may be many nations and there may be many kings, but there is one king that reigns supreme over all. And even in the earthly ministry of our Lord, people could not resist to be drawn to Him. Even if they didn't repent of their sins, they knew He had authority. They knew He was the King. They instinctively knew He came from God, even Gentiles. We read earlier for our call to worship from Psalm 47 that the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great King over all the earth. He subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. The unavoidable affinity of Jesus. Now why were they coming to Him? Well, notice the end of verse 8, it gives us a clue. It says, when the great crowd heard all that He was doing, they came to Him. Well, what was Jesus doing? Well, He was doing a lot of things, wasn't He? He was healing a lot of people. He was casting a lot of demons out. I think that many in these crowds were coming for those reasons. The hordes of people came to be healed. But I think it's worth pointing out that this unavoidable magnetic affinity, this pull toward Jesus was also rooted in his teaching and his preaching. Isn't that what Mark has labored to show us? That he taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. Or to borrow Luke's words, people hung on his every word when he preached. When Jesus preached, when Jesus performed miracles, There was an unavoidable affinity. You remember Jesus said in John chapter 12, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. That's happening right now. And it's a preview of things to come when the Gospel would go to the ends of the earth, even as it is still going to the ends of the earth today, to draw people to Christ. In the God-man, there was this unavoidable affinity. For His part, Jesus recognized His most important Aspect of earthly ministry was preaching back in chapter 1, verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Or at the end, or close to the end of chapter 1, They came to look for Jesus. Everyone's looking for you. Verse 37, And Jesus said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And Mark says he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So there are many reasons to assume that when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, it included not just his miracle working, but also his teaching and his preaching. They were going to hear him. But Jesus on this occasion was withdrawing with the disciples in particular that word "methetes" in the Greek literally means a student or a learner or a pupil, and he wants to, to take these disciples and to instruct them. perhaps they had questions as to why the religious leaders hated him so much. If you are truly the Messiah, why does the religious establishment have so much against you? Jesus would on this occasion, I think likely plainly open the Scriptures to instruct them in these things. And he would go by the sea to do, to do it. That was his favorite place to go. Chapter 2, verse 13 says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. We also read, by the way, in verse 9 of chapter 3, we'll get to it here in a couple of minutes, that Jesus had a boat ready for him. And we know from chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 that Jesus would sit in that boat and He would use that boat as a makeshift pulpit. So I think Jesus is withdrawing with His disciples to instruct them. But there wouldn't be a ton of instructing before the crowds came. Before they found Him, the religious leaders couldn't stand Jesus because He challenged their authority. They lost credibility with the people. They were drawn to Jesus. And yet, how many of these disciples were false followers of Jesus? Well, if you turn with me to John chapter 2, we get just a glimpse of this reality. John chapter 2, verse 23. When He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name. When they saw the signs that He was doing... But Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people and indeed no one to bear witness about man. He needed no one to bear witness about man for He Himself knew what was in man. These were false professions of faith based on the fact that they saw the signs, maybe even experienced a miracle that Jesus performed. But Jesus was not entrusting Himself to them. He knew all people. He knew their hearts. He knew... They were fake. Many people followed Him for His miracles but didn't know Him. Or flip over with me to John chapter 6 in verse 66. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. Why was that? Well, what does He say in verse 65? This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted him by the Father. That's the reason many turned and walked away. Jesus taught the doctrine of election. People couldn't stand it. They walked away from Him in spite of His miracles. They walked away from Him in spite of His message, in spite of His doctrine. Even King Herod had an affinity for Jesus. We read in Matthew's Gospel that Herod heard about the fame of Jesus. And Luke tells us, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see Jesus and was hoping to see some sign done by Him. That was this crowd. One by one. Excited to hear Jesus, but one by one leaving Jesus. Perhaps Jesus would step on their toes concerning a sin, perhaps Jesus would declare a doctrine that didn't jive with the traditions of the Pharisees, perhaps they would just move on to the next exciting thing, but all of this should cause us to question our own hearts, shouldn't it? Think of the men who took their families to hear Jesus teach, or those who took their friends to be healed by Jesus and they experienced the powerful words of Jesus, they experienced the powerful touch of Jesus and they left dead in their sins, unforgiven. Listen, beloved, religion doesn't save. A religious experience with Jesus doesn't save. Only Jesus saves. Church membership will not save you. Church attendance will not save you. Your Christian parents cannot save you. There were many disciples baptized by John, baptized by the disciples of Jesus, who were false professors, not true possessors. If you have Jesus... You have all that you need. If you don't have Jesus, it doesn't matter what you have. Religion, spirituality, it doesn't matter. Many people go to church because it makes them feel good. Other people pray because they want to get from Jesus what they can get, maybe physical healing, maybe physical things, material wealth. And such people are no different than those in the crowds. They're unforgiven, unchanged by the gospel. Mere sentimentalism toward Jesus is not the affinity by which the Holy Spirit produces in the hearts of His true followers. Jesus' true followers want Jesus for one thing, that is salvation. They are unwilling to forfeit their soul for the sake of what they can get from Jesus in this life. But sadly, that was many in in the crowds. Jesus would say on one occasion, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Many saw, but many did not believe. Many saw his miracles and were drawn to them, but did not believe who he said he was. Who was he? Mark 1.1. 1, 1. He's the incarnate Son of God and the only Savior of the world. He is not merely a miracle worker. My dear friends, Jesus either is who he claimed to be or he is not. And you will either believe Him to be the incarnate Son of God and the only Savior of the world, or you will not. And if you do not believe that's who He is, you are still in your sins. You are unforgiven. And you will be sent to hell for all of eternity for rejecting Christ. The wrath of God will abide on you for all of eternity. You cannot be drawn to Jesus for superficial reasons and get into the kingdom of God. There were those who heard the preaching of Jesus and saw the miracles of Jesus and walked away unchanged. If that is you this morning, I I plead with you earnestly to beg God for forgiveness. To beg Him that you would be drawn to Him by His grace. That you would cling to Him and embrace Him as your Savior and as your Lord. Not just as a miracle worker and a preacher and a teacher, but as your sacrificial lamb who shed His blood on the cross for your soul, for your sins that you need forgiven for. Mark wants us to see our Lord. What marked his ministry was an unavoidable affinity. Secondly, there was something else that marked his ministry, not only an unavoidable affinity, but number two, an unrepeatable ability. We've already mentioned it, but Mark underscores Jesus' supernatural ability to heal which is both undeniable, and let me put it this way, unrepeatable in the history of the world. Verse 9 gives us a taste for how massive and desperate the crowds were. Notice it with me. It says, And He told His disciples to have a boat ready for Him because of the crowd lest they crush Him. I mean, can you imagine the scene? As the crowd pressed in upon Him, He told His disciples to get the boat ready for a quick escape. The crowd was so massive and desperate. Jesus likely didn't have a chance to get in it to teach, but he would use that boat to escape when he saw his life was in danger because he knew his time had not yet come. And verse 10, if you notice it with me, it conveys the intensity and the desperation of the crowd. They knew of his abilities and they're desperate. Verse 10 says, For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. He already healed many by the time that He told the disciples to get the boat ready. And here's the picture. As He healed one person after another, the desperation continually grew as they saw His miraculous power on display. They had heard of it. They had come from all these various regions. They had traveled hundreds of miles carrying their sick loved ones upon their backs, but now they saw it. And desperately... They pressed around him to touch him. That Greek word pressed around. Listen to this. It literally means they fell upon him. They were mobbing Jesus. The sights and the sounds were a mixture of joyous laughter, cries for help, pushing and shoving. Jesus would reach out to heal one individual and another one would grab his elbow or grab his arm or, or grab his feet. The chaos was unimaginable. And the point to see is that the people were so convinced of His power that they knew that if they could just reach out and touch Him, they would be healed. We don't need You to touch us, Jesus. Let us just touch You. In fact, I read earlier, if you go over to Mark 6, we'll look at it again. Look at it again, verse 56. A little summary verse here. It says, "...wherever He came..." That is, Jesus, in villages, cities, or the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces. They just laid them there and implored Him that as He walked by, they might touch even the fringe of His garment. And as many as touched it, they were made well. They didn't even touch the skin of Jesus. They just touched the clothing He wore. And they were healed. This may reveal, however that many didn't care to interact with Jesus personally. They were interested in a quick fix. A limb made straight, a chronic disease disappearing, an atrophied hand made whole, largely superficial and earthly. We know that when Jesus could, He would make the moment special, wouldn't He? He'd look the person He was going to heal in the eye, He would touch them, He would embrace them. This particular crowd didn't appear to want that, They wanted what they could get from Jesus, and they were gone. This is in contrast, isn't it, to the compassionate touch of Jesus to the leper we saw earlier in chapter 1, or the personal commanding words to the paralytic son, those endearing words, Son, take up your bed, go home. You're healed. You're forgiven. No, this scene by the sea had only momentary moments like that. This crowd had little compassion for those around them. They weren't into pleasantries. It was every man for himself. They were more obsessed with Jesus' power than His person. They were more into His healing than His teaching. And this effectively removed any personal, intimate experience. It was just mass chaos. They reached for Him. They dove for Him. They grabbed at Him. They pulled on Him to such a degree that His very life was in jeopardy and He had to have a boat ready to take Him away. And yet, the graciousness of our Lord. He stood there. As long as He knew His life wasn't in danger, His body was an instrument for His Father. Any person, any ailment, any circumstance. Why? Because Jesus knew part of the evidence of His identity as the incarnate Son of God and the only Savior of the world was dependent upon Him performing miracles so that people would know He came from God and that He was God. We know He would rather... Of rather preach. That was what he was called to do. But he was compelled by so much compassion. People walked away not only amazed by his power, but also his pity. Not only his commanding ability, but also his compassionate attitude. This crowd wouldn't allow that to happen. They were superficial. You remember the woman. We'll get to it in Mark's Gospel. There was a great crowd around Jesus the woman with issue of blood tries to touch Jesus to be healed. Tries to touch Him and does touch the hem of His garment. but She doesn't want to be noticed. And you remember Jesus turned around and He said, Who touched my garment? He didn't have to do that. He did that because He wanted to Show personal and intimate compassion for this woman who was healed. And then he said to her, daughter, which is a term of endearment. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. This crowd didn't want that personal touch. This crowd was filled with bad motives, bad theology, superficial interest. Yet, you know, it is a reminder to us that the church is the body of Christ, is it not? And each member of the body of Christ has a function, does it not? We are to serve His kingdom with selfish reasons. We are to serve those with bad theology, aren't we? We are to serve those with bad motives. We are to speak the truth in love example the Lord sets before us that true servants don't seek to be first they seek to be last and because they seek to be last they become first Jesus would say that to to use language of today Jesus was a people person he cared about people even though they didn't care about him he cared enough for them that he would display his power he would display his grace he would display his compassion Yet at the same time, our Lord knew there was a line to be drawn. The Father sent Him to preach and die. He didn't come primarily to heal, so He had the boat ready to go whenever necessary. And I just want to say this, many ministries and churches can often get off course even when they try to do good. The focus of the church is to preach the gospel. Jesus had that boat ready to keep Him on His stated course. The church has a one-fold mission, is to preach the gospel. It's to see souls saved. It's to see saints sanctified. We're the body of Christ. Not every Christian can serve in every capacity equally. That's why there's different members gifted in different ways. But we are the body of Christ. And and if I can use this sort of language, we need to feel pulled on the body of Christ in a hundred different directions. And at the same time, We need to have a boat ready to launch away from a number of unhelpful distractions. But we have to be willing to serve at inopportune times. This is what the church is about. This is how Jesus served. If you're a dad, if you're a husband, you ought to feel the weight and the pressure of the importance of bringing your family to church and conducting family worship. You ought to feel the the pull of your wife when she asks you to explain the Scriptures, you better have an answer. You better know how to teach her. Wives and mothers, you're going to be pulled sometimes literally and physically by your children in a hundred different directions. And you need to be there to give them the Gospel. That is kingdom work. It doesn't matter if you clean the church, if you dust the pews, you vacuum the floors, you take out the trash, or you preach the Gospel. All of it is service in the kingdom. Every member of the church is collectively the body of Christ. We serve in the church and it will often look chaotic like this scene. People pulling and grabbing, thrusting themselves at Jesus. The church is a messy place. But God graciously works through all of that to sanctify His saints. And all of these miracles, this... Unrepeatable ability, never seen before in the history of the world, never seen since, was meant to point people to his identity as the incarnate Son of God, the only Savior of the world. Jesus would say this on one occasion For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father sent me. Or another occasion, he said, Believe. The works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And John would give his purpose statement in John chapter 20 of the whole reason he wrote the gospel. I've written all of these things, all of these signs, all of these miracles that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 2,000 years before modern medicine, Jesus single-handedly banished sickness from this region of the world. The blind had their sight restored. The deaf had their hearing restored. The crippled walked again. The lepers were cleansed. The dead were raised. All by a touch, all by a word, or in this case, others touching Jesus. No medicine, no potions, no incantations, no rehab, no surgeries, just complete, immediate, undeniable, unrepeatable healings. Service. God made us physical bodies, and these physical bodies will be resurrected, reconnected with our souls someday. But Jesus had that boat ready because He didn't ultimately come just to heal people, He came to die for sinners. And that's what you need to take away from these unrepeatable healings of Jesus. They were all meant to point to His identity. That we are not just sick with sin, beloved, we are dead. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. Jesus has the ability to heal at a moment's notice just by someone touching His garments. He can forgive sinners. He can raise dead sinners. I think there's a lesson for us regarding prayer on this. Our prayer lives need to be marked by more than just praying for the physical needs of others. We need to implore the Lord that He would save souls. How much do you spend in praying to the Lord for revival in this community, in this country? I know the Lord is judging our country, but do you pray for revival? Do you pray that as the gospel is proclaimed, the Lord would save souls? Jesus came to save souls. There's a lesson here also on priority, I think. The church has one string on her banjo, and that is to play the gospel. COVID or no COVID, there is no hope in this world apart from Christ. It's almost like there was a news flash in 2020. Guess what? You actually might die. No, the Bible says you're already dead. Spiritually, you will die physically someday. The church needs to make her focus King Jesus. Where is the faith in King Jesus today? Where is the faith to declare the gospel and see God change not only this community, but this country and this world? He did it in his own day, he could do it again. Church has the only hope. The answer is not found in a science lab. It's not found in a vaccine. It's not found on Capitol Hill. God help us. No. As the church proclaims the gospel, we do so and then we drag people into the boat of rescue, leading to eternal life. That's the job of the church proclaim Christ, proclaim his power. His miracles are just a testimony to His power, but His power is to save souls. This past week, some keys were found in the parking lot out here last Sunday. And so I was early in the week trying to find a way to find the owner of these keys. I assumed it wasn't anyone in our church because no one emailed or texted or called. But I received a phone call from the owner of the keys. It was someone who works in this business complex and So I I went to take the keys um, to the person that lost them, and I ran into another person that works in this business complex, and she began to ask about the church, and so I began to tell her, well, if you come to our church, you will hear the truth of the gospel, and it may change your life forever. She said, it's interesting that you say that, because I've been wondering about your church. She said, every time I walk on the sidewalk past the front window... I know God is at work in that church. I said, how do you know that? She said, because I see the blinds moving. (laughs) And I said, well, I assure you, God is at work in our church, but that's just the air conditioner blowing on the panels of the blinds. But beloved, what does the world see when they walk by the church and look into the window? What do they hear? Do they hear the gospel? Do they hear much being made about Christ? Is the focus on Christ or is it on the people? Is the focus on the gospel or is it on how we can serve the community and and do all sorts of temporal things? We ought to do those things, we ought to serve. But the church needs to be a mouth house for the gospel. People will only believe the message we proclaim as the Spirit testifies to its truth in their hearts. But you know what? It doesn't hurt to actually live like we believe there is a King, that He is in control of all things, and we joyfully walk through this life, humbly submitting to Him. That is a powerful testimony to the watching world. That reveals to the world, God is at work in this place among His people. After all, The demons acknowledged Jesus' sovereignty. And that's what we come to next. This little bio of Jesus isn't finished. Mark shows us that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, the only Savior of the world, first of all, by pointing to his unavoidable affinity. People were drawn to him. Secondly, his unrepeatable ability. He did things no one has ever done and no one ever will do. He's the Son of God. Third, his undeniable authority. His unavoidable affinity, his unrepeatable ability, his undeniable authority. Verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 is another statement to the sovereignty of the reign of Christ. Notice it. Mark says, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him. Now just think about this. When they saw him, they fell down before him. And not only that, they cried out, You are the Son of God! Earlier, Mark told us that Jesus' supernatural ability to command unclean spirits was a sign of His authority back in chapter 1 and verse 27. A new teaching with authority. Verse 27, He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him. Here, they fall down before Him. Earlier in this account, the disease fell before Him to be healed Here, the the demons fall before Him and they make a theological statement. You are the Son of God. Very interesting. The only other one in Mark's Gospel to this point that has made that same declaration is God Himself. Crowds didn't make that declaration. Pharisees didn't make that declaration. The disciples have not made that declaration. The demons do. The demons know. The demons know He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. If Christ had authority over demons prior to His death and resurrection, how much more power now? What did Jesus say in Matthew 28? Last thing He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Here, these unclean spirits, these morally and spiritually filthy spirits, could not resist to declare the authority of Jesus The crowds willingly fell at His feet. (laughs) These demons unwillingly yet irresistibly fell at His feet. They were orthodox demons. All demons are orthodox. You know why? Because they live in the supernatural world. They see what you don't see, and they see what people refuse to see in the world today. They see the supernatural. They see God. They know He is in control of all things. Why did they fall before Him? They fell before Him because they couldn't help it. They were so fearful. James 2.19 says, the demons believe that God is one and they shudder. They couldn't resist the power of Jesus. And they declare His power. You are the Son of God. Later, the disciples will declare that. Peter leading the way. And at the very end of this Gospel, in chapter 15, in verse 39, the centurion, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, will make that confession, truly this man was the Son of God. Are you here today and you deny that Jesus is the Son of God? You know there are demons that believe more than you. They have more faith than you. Put your skepticism aside. Put your doubts aside. The demons know Jesus is the Son of God. Did you hear that? They know it. They fear. Notice what Jesus says in verse 12. Mark says He strictly ordered them not to make him known. That is the demons. Now, we've looked at this before, right? Earlier in Mark's gospel. Why would Jesus, if he wants people to know his identity, why would he want the demons not to parade that around? Well, beyond the fact that Jesus didn't want hell to sponsor him, is one reason he commanded them to be quiet. He would say things like, be silent, come out of him. Remember that? Chapter 1, verse 25, the demon in the synagogue Beyond that, I think that this language of strictly ordered brings to mind, the Greek here represents the sovereign command of God to rebuke and subdue even demonic forces. These forces are left with no other choice than to bow to His sovereignty. Why would Jesus, beyond the fact of not wanting to be sponsored by hell, not want them to speak of His identity? Here's the reason. It conveyed His sovereign authority over them. Guess what? They obeyed Him. They may have blurted out, you are the Son of God, but once He said, be silent, once He strictly ordered them not to do that, they didn't do it. They were gone. They never re-entered a person. Jesus would say in chapter 3, verse 27, that He was the strong man who would enter, enter the house of the devil and plunder it. Subdue Satan. All of this it's undeniable authority of King Jesus, even by the demons, recognizing it. It's a preview of things to come, the showdown between heaven and hell, when Jesus would hang upon the cross, he would be raised from the dead, and he would silence the devil. Christ our shepherd has two voices. With one word, he calls the sheep to himself, with another word, He judges and silences the demons and all Christ rejectors. There's coming a day, the Bible says, in which sinners will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and they will place their hand over their mouth in silent shame. This is a preview of what is to come. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will declare that Jesus is God. He is the incarnate Son of God. He is the only Savior of the world. Someday, all talking points will be silenced. All false narratives will be exposed. Evil demons, evil people will be judged. Why? Because of the undeniable authority of Christ the King. Nobody, not even powerful demons, can stop the hand of God. In chapter 6, Jesus would give power to the apostles to deliver unclean spirits amplifying even more the authority of Jesus. So why does Mark give these summary statements, these sweeping general statements of Jesus' ministry? Well, because Peter was in his ear and Peter wanted him to get to the point. What is the point? Jesus is the incarnate Son of God and the only Savior of the world. That's the point. You either have him or you don't. You either know him or you don't. You've either been forgiven or you haven't. You haven't. You've either been embraced by his love or the wrath of God abides upon you. You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. You either receive him or you reject him. There's no neutral parties in this battle. You're in a war whether you like it or not. And you must choose which side you will be on. He can change his enemies into friends, he does that by his sovereignty. He can do that for you today. His ministry was amazing, wasn't it? Marked by unavoidable affinity, unrepeatable ability, undeniable authority. As I said earlier, if you go to a website, you go to a certain organization, the About Me page, you go to the bio, you read the bio, when you come to the end of it, they always save the best for last because they always speak about what is most important to the head of that organization. And it always boils down to his family, who his spouse is, who his children are. Where well, Mark ends this bio to remind us that Jesus' family is the most important thing to him. Who is his family? His family is the church. We say all the time, Jesus is head of the church, right? But Mark ends by telling us in a roundabout way, Jesus is not just head of the church. Jesus is king of the world. You want proof of that? Jesus has authority over demons. He is the king of kings. Now I want to close by turning to John chapter 6. Later in Mark's gospel, Peter will make a confession that Jesus is the Messiah. But here in John chapter 6, We see Peter understood who Jesus was. We see that many were deserting Jesus. Verse 66, after this many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. That would have been many that were present on this day. Jesus by the sea. But verse 67 says, So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter, always the spokesman, answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are the Holy One of God. That was the same confession made by the demon in the synagogue. You are the Holy One of God. Finally, Peter got it. The disciples understood what the demons did. You are the Holy One of God. You are the Son of God. You know, I often think, and this is just for fun, but if Peter could leave heaven and come to earth and preach a sermon... I think he'd ask one question. And I think that question would be To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You cannot run from a world tossed to and fro in sin, mass confusion, wickedness, lies. But you can turn to King Jesus. And you can have the assurance that he is in control of all things, he is the Holy One of God. To this one, even the demons ascribed full and final authority. He is the king. And someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that. He is the king. Have you recognized his identity? Are you familiar with his bio? Do you recognize him as holding power over every breath you take in? He's the one you need to turn to for salvation. He is, as we open the service, exactly how Psalm 47 describes Him. Clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with a voice of joy, for the Lord Most High is to be feared. A great King over all the earth, He subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. God has ascended with a shout. The Lord, with the sound of a trumpet, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm of wisdom. He is a light to the Gentiles. And someday He will rule this world from the north to the south, to the east, into the west question is are you in his kingdom are you familiar with jesus and are you not just familiar with him but do you know him has he forgiven you have you heard his voice have you heard him say son your sins are forgiven or daughter your faith has made you well you're forgiven go in peace if you haven't heard those words then you're not in the kingdom You may have heard about Jesus. You may have heard sermons about Jesus. You may have seen the power of God at at work in the lives of those that you know and love who follow Jesus, but you're not a follower of Jesus until you're assured and you know that the reason He came was to bring you eternal life. I hope you know Him. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for... Your word and for the power of Your Word. Even these summary statements by Mark leave us in awe and wonder. Mark did not and could not record everything that our Lord said and did, but he gives to us a summary of what he did. He gives to us how people responded to him, how people were drawn to him, how people saw his unrepeatable miracles how even the demons declared his undeniable authority. Lord, he was marked with an unavoidable affinity. People were just drawn to him. And yet, Lord, if we're not drawn to him for the right reasons, to be forgiven, to be restored, Lord, we can have no part of you. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Father, we pray that all here would embrace King Jesus. As their Lord and as their Savior. Help us, dear Father, to meditate upon these truths the rest of this Lord's day. Lord, even as we sing this hymn of response, Lord, may you cultivate within our hearts a greater love for Christ. We pray and ask all of these things in His blessed and holy name.